Welcome to the G3 Podcast. It's, this is a new season, and we're excited to be back. We're excited to have you join us. Uh, we're going to be talking about a great subject. In fact, this is what you asked for. You asked for it. Uh, this is a, a, an idea about our kind of our, our mailbag, if you will, yeah. number of different questions. We get the questions from a lot of different spaces, yeah. uh, from email, from uh, you know folks who, who well they don't they don't call in anymore. Right. right. They, they usually we're getting we're getting an email. They don't tweet at us anymore. Either. They don't yeah. tweet at us anymore, yeah. do they? Yeah. They post. They Some, post. Oh, that's right. They X they, at us. They or post. Something. Yeah, yeah. They X at yeah. us or whatever they do. <laughs> Needless to say, we've got a list of questions. They come from you. And so we wanted to take the time and we'll probably do this again when opportunities present themselves. And uh, we get a, a list of these. We'll actually uh, stop pause and walk through we, these. we get so many emails and our administrative assistant will forward them and it's just so many and it's impossible to answer them all so this will be a wonderful way for us to just be and a lot of them are common right yeah. we'll get common questions yeah. so yeah we would just encourage people send us emails do tweet at us or exit us or whatever um, we'll kind of compile these because we might not be able to answer right away but we can do episodes like this regularly and it'll give us an opportunity just for quick succinct answers to a bunch of stuff yeah so don't don't blame us you asked for it right that's right you, you asked, asked for it, for it. You so asked here's for it. here's yeah <laughs> you you asked you for asked it, for Virgil. it you you asked for it so that's how this is going to work i still think we need some theme music <laughs> dun, 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 dun. oh this you is... asked for it yeah i was kind of hoping that he wouldn't he do that do but but he did <laughs> you asked for it. You asked for it, so that's what you get. Yeah. Well, the the first group of questions kind of uh, really talk or ask about the issue of of worship, or they're kind of under that heading. So let me start by kind of throwing this out to you guys and seeing where you want to take this, where, where where we will take the conversation. Uh, the question the, the questioner asks this: Should baptism church membership be a requirement for taking the Lord's Supper? And the, the, the follow-up to that is, why doesn't the 1689 London Baptist Confession require it? Yeah, it's a fair question. Yeah. Um, I think just to start the, the answer would be that as we read the New Testament, we look at the book of Acts, you see Peter preaching at Pentecost, mm-hmm. you see 3,000 are baptized, and then the very next text, what you see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, is the functionality of the church, the breaking of bread, two times in that paragraph, breaking of bread is mentioned, the first of which I would take to be the Lord's Supper. The latter, the the the, the last of those would be, um, you know, the the, the genuine fellowship koinonia of the of the church. Yeah. And so you see that, uh, you know, a, a follower of Christ is baptized, sort of like welcomed into the community of faith, and then they're engaging in the worship with the community of faith, Mm -hmm. specifically that of the Lord's table, among the other aspects of worship as well. It would just be a very odd thing if you think about the first century to have someone who's a non-baptized follower of Jesus coming into the life of the church and then sitting at the Lord's table worshiping with them. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, I agree completely, and and you know it's true. This this is a perceptive question because it's true that the sixteen eighty nine confession doesn't specify, and the reason for that was this was this was a major controversy among those early seventeenth century Baptists. In fact, you know a man like John Bunyan agreed with the Baptists almost to a point, but he didn't agree on this point. He didn't want to require baptism of believers by immersion for entrance into communion or, or seating at the Lord's table. Whereas most of the, the the signers of the confession, most of the Reformed Baptists did, although there still was some debate. So this was not something that was settled by the time the confession was written. But later, I mean, by the time you get to men like Charles Spurgeon, 
and, and even earlier other Reformed Baptists, it was pretty much agreed upon that believer baptism by immersion was a requirement. And they viewed, you know, when, when we say the word communion, there's really a double meaning. It means it means membership, communion into the body, mm-hmm. but also welcome, you know, to sit at the Lord's table. And I really think, because I agree completely, there's there's biblical precedent for this. I mean, how how do... You know how do we how do we fence the table? Right. How do we protect the sanctity <clears throat> right. of the table right. without requiring these things? And it's not that we stand there with a with a sword and you know block it, but at least we state like we do in our church. Yeah. Here are the requirements: you have to be a Christian, you have to be a baptized believer, and you have to be a faithful member of a local church who's not in church discipline. And and we're protecting the sanctity of the table, but really, ultimately, what we're protecting is the is the person themselves, yeah. because yeah. we find in First Corinthians chapter eleven that some people had died because mm-hmm. they came to the table in an unworthy yeah. manner. Yeah. And so it's really really important. I think you know it, it's one of the dangers of moving to a very you know stripped down memorialist view of the table, where we just think, oh, all we're doing is remembering the death and body of Christ. Well, we are doing that. But this is also a significant picture of the communion of the body around Christ that would be distorted if we allowed certainly unbelievers or people who are not living in fellowship with Christ and his church uh, would be destroyed. And it is a it is a way that our souls are nourished. Yeah. It is good for us. It's a means of grace. And so we're actually protecting people by saying, hey, you're, you're welcome to come mm-hmm. if you're a believer, you're a baptized believer, and you're a faithful believer who's a member of a local yeah, church. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, all those good. I, I love the, the the way you guys answered that because it it added both components of, of how, how the table is fenced, and then the reality of you know a believer, a baptized believer, uh, engaged in membership at, at the at the local church, uh, being able to engage in the in the Lord's supper. The next question is interesting. I, I wasn't aware of this, but this person is a pastor who lives in Tennessee, and and the statement they're saying is uh, there are lots of churches of Christ here, and of course they are opposed to musical instruments in public worship. How or could you address this? Could you address this? Just the issue of of a, of a church of Christ uh, that does not uh, worship with musical instruments. I had a background in, in the Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in Church of Christ uh, circles for a while. Uh, I I went and entered those circles, uh, but I was I was kind of a Baptist at heart. I'd, I'd call it Baptocostal. I was kind of Baptocostal at heart because came from a Pentecostal church. Uh, grew up, born and raised had Baptist upbringing and then find myself in a church of Christ. And uh, the, the style of the style of worship, which we're going to get into, y'all are both looking at me like I'm crazy. The style. <laughs> I'm just, I'm enjoying just this. listening, this listening to the story. The style of worship from, from the Pentecostal to the church of Christ is night and day. Like yeah. it's night and day. Right. Um, and so, you know, pretty eclectic with that, with regard to that, but I totally understand a, the background, uh, the church of Christ, uh, the fact that they're opposed to musical instruments. Anyway, I said more than I probably should have said, but how would, how would you gentlemen address this? How could you address this? Well, I would just say, read the Psalms and then, and then I would pass the ball over to Scott yeah. because yeah. I know Scott, you've, you've written much on this. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is, this is a good question and it's a perceptive question because where, Churches of Christ would agree with with us and with, you know, say, Presbyterians who place a really high priority on the authority of Scripture, the regulative principle, is we have to have a biblical warrant. Mm-hmm. And what they argue, and I think they're wrong, but what they argue is there is no biblical warrant in the New Testament right. for the practice of instruments. Right. So I disagree with that on two points. Number one is what you just said, Josh. I think the the elements of our worship ought to have clear biblical prescription in the new I, I would even agree in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That's very Baptist because right. we're the New Testament church. 
But once we have a prescribed element of worship, so we have a prescribed element of worship of, of singing, of music, then clearly we can look to the Old Testament and, and see examples in the Psalms or in Old Testament Israel of how they used instruments appropriately to do what the New Testament prescribes us to do. So right there we have, we have some, um, some evidence. But contextually too, right? Yeah, because right, right. I, I would in say— words, In other words, you don't read the Psalms and say, well, it says right there they're dancing— so obviously we should yes, just incorporate point. dancing in, right. in, in, in the, the context of, of corporate worship. Exactly. Right? And we do see examples of that. In the context of corporate worship, they used predominantly the lyre uh, you know, to accompany singing. Of course, they had the shofar and the, the silver trumpet, and they had sim- the, the leaders would use cymbals. So, yeah, that's a very good point. Not, not, and that's also a good point. I mean, it's not they, – they had – you know, they had some instruments that they used for corporate worship, other instruments that they used in the general life of, of Israel, and so, yeah, context matters. But the other point is, I would say, even in the New Testament, there is there is at least implicit uh, mention of instruments in Ephesians 5.19, where Paul writes, you know, uh, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Mm-hmm. Singing is a Greek word that specifically refers to vocal music with lyrics. Mm-hmm. Making melody is a word that literally means to pluck a stringed instrument. Mm-hmm. So the original readers, because they're reading this and Paul's using language that they can understand and they have the context of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. they're going to hear, oh yeah, that's exactly what, 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 you know, if they're a Jewish Christian, that's exactly what we did in, in Jewish worship. We sang accompanied by plucked stringed instruments. And even if you're not a Jew, you still are recognizing the meaning of those terms. So for both of those reasons, I, although I appreciate and respect the desire to make sure that what we're doing is regulated by Scripture, sure. I think Scripture does prescribe you know, the, the, the use of instruments yeah. in corporate worship. As it pertains to kind of the regulative principle and, and, and that style of worship, just what does the text say? That's what we, we do. I think most, the vast majority of churches are are not doing that. I think a lot of the the, the contemporary form of worship uh, is something that now is kind of kind of not not folks aren't gravitating toward that. They're not even asking the question. <clears throat> no, yeah. they're yeah. really not. They're, they're, they're folks they're asking re- a different question. They really are. They really are. And so I think I think that that what's what's happening in this particular instance is you're seeing a lot of those churches. I know church. I've been around church folks who are part of the Church of Christ for a long time. But any growth that you see, any pattern that you see where there's a draw to that, I think the draw is actually to a less contemporary mode of, of, of worship. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Scott said um, about the, the text, you know, singing and making melody in your heart. But also I think it would be a, a flip side to this question would be this. Um, when we come into the modern evangelical church culture, I think we should say, how does Scripture regulate our worship? Yes. yes. However— I think it would be wrong for us to say that every little moment of silence or or any little moment of you know uh, the service where we might not be using musical instruments is bad because yeah. our tendency is to fill up every single aspect of the service from the opening scripture yeah, reading to point. the closing benediction, yeah. Yeah. and it's like well that you know that silent prayer of confession seems awkward, mm-hmm. and, and another thing that might seem awkward to a lot of modern evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And even some reformed-ish evangelicals would be 
the idea of singing a cappella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a beautiful it thing. It is a beautiful, it wonderful it thing. Is. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, man. We could keep on talking about this, but look, let's move on to the next question. Is there one model for this is great. Is there one model for corporate worship or should we allow flexibility on specific aspects of the service? For instance, should we say uh, that we must have a pipe organ and must uh, we uh, disallow uh, the guitar or drums from being used in corporate worship? I'll take the ownership for this question yeah, yeah, being yeah, asked yeah. because <laughs> I wrote an article about the you know the importance of using an organ in mm-hmm. worship. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just be very clear: we would not suggest that there is a mandate to use something like an organ. Mm-hmm. We think about using an organ. Why is it a good thing? Well, <clears throat> you know. A lot of churches can't afford a pipe organ. Do right. you know how much a pipe organ I costs? Know, I mean, like, a lot. It's crazy. I'm in the millions, yeah. if it's a large pipe organ, right? Um, even a smaller organ that's just electronic is going to be, you know, thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars, and that's on the smaller side. Um, so it would be foolish for us to say every church that's planted across planet Earth has to have, uh, you know, some sort of organ that's mm-hmm. incorporated into their worship. Mm-hmm. Organs are really good instruments because they have a sustainability of sound that really allows for congregational singing, and it fills the gaps. Um, but if you go back to the previous question about singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, that that idea of a plucked string can be used, so a guitar can be used. It's all about how you use that mm-hmm. instrument, and I think that that's critically important for us. And this is a non-music guy talking. This is a non you know, musically gifted guy speaking here, but just looking at the way that the church functions, we need to say, it would be foolish for us to say, we have to do it this way, okay? Because Mm -hmm. I think that when we start drawing these hard lines in the sand where the scripture doesn't speak, that can be a dangerous thing. And and someone else may come along and have a different line in the sand that they're going to hold to. And so you start to have these these worship wars. A flip question to ask would be, why is it that you choose the musical instruments that you choose? That's a great question, yeah. 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 So, I mean, just ask that honest question and then be honest when you give the answer. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. When I teach, you know, I I always teach, you know, musical instruments are tools, and tools are designed to do certain things well, and and then by virtue of how they're designed, they maybe can't do other things well. And so with any tool, the question is— What's our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? And then let's find the best tool that we can use in our setting, which I agree completely. In some churches, that's just not going to be an organ. Let's find the best tool that we can use that can support our goal. So if our goal is the robust singing of God's people, then I think what your article said so well, you weren't arguing at all that you have to use it or that any, you know something else is, is you know evil. You were just arguing like you just communicated. The organ is a tool that how it's designed actually supports robust congregational singing well. That, you know, so, you know, I I often will joke, could we accompany congregational singing in in our church using the kazoo? Well, yes, you could, right, right, right. <laughs> but it's going to be much harder to use a tool that's not exactly designed Time to do that. that. Sure. You know, it's like, can I, can I pound a nail into the wall using a screwdriver? Yes, I've done it, by the way. But, you know, because that tool is not designed to do it, it's just it, you're, you're limited, right? So there are some instruments 
instruments or tools that just because of how they work, you know, a flute, can a flute, can a single flute accompany a congregation singing? It would, yes, but it'd be really hard to do that because it's just not designed to do that. So I think what you said, Josh, is, is excellent. W- w- what's your goal? Why are you choosing the instruments that you're choosing? Let's assess our situation and find the best tool that that is designed to accomplish what we're attempting to do, which hopefully, again, biblically, is reverent worship, yeah. scripture-guided worship, and the robust singing about Yeah, people. absolutely. So I, I think a lot of churches, unfortunately, they fall into the trap of saying, we want to use this instrument because it looks cool. Yeah. Right. Rather than the, the type of sound that it provides. Right. right. Just like I could, you know, I could easily come to the table for, you know, an anniversary dinner with my wife and I could just have our drinks in a solo cup, a little, or a little styrofoam cup, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's going to do the same thing. It's going to hold liquid, right. and it's going to allow me to bring it from the table to my mouth. Right. right? The functionality is going to be the same. <clears throat> but if there's a, a nicer glass container, a, a nicer glass that has some beauty, some some form, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that the idea of the conversation bring you know this to the table would be the the form and content, mm-hmm. you know, aspect of okay, the the styrofoam cup works. But it's not beautiful, yeah. Right. Yeah. and I think that that's really the key. I think what happens often when you write an article, <clears throat> kind of like the, what, what you did, folks who maybe don't have particularly as it relates to this instrument, that, that don't have that instrument in their church, they're like, oh, he's talking about me. <laughs> you know, he, He's aiming the guns at me, and, and that's not at all the case. You're not just making a, 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 having a, a, a conversation or, or wanting to start a conversation uh, about d- decisions we've made here at Praise Mill particularly yeah. uh, and, and why, which kind of leads to the next question. Uh, as it pertains to us and the questions we get asked oftentimes about stances we take, it's what, and, and the question is this, what is G3's position on the fundamentalist movement? What is G3's position on the fundamentalist movement? Well, we're not a fundamentalist ministry. Obviously, I think, you know, you would have to ask just like, you know, as it pertains to like a Calvinistic, you know, question. So what do you mean by yeah. Calvinist? I, I would want to know what do you mean by fundamentalist? Um, we're not like some, some people's definition of fundamentalism might mean, you know, women wearing a certain type of apparel, mm-hmm. men wearing a certain type of dress, it being held to a certain type of dress code, using the King James Bible only and that sort of thing. Um, but then there's also the historic, you know, aspect of the fundamentalist movement, specifically the fundamentals of the faith and someone like uh, J. Gratian Machen, you know, holding to the fundamentals, although he would push back against the actual title. Um, if you just read during that time period, just read his works, you will see that he's standing upon truth over against error. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really the key. So we're 1689, London Baptist Confession ministry, and so that's really the confession that we hold to. Um, I have seen, you know— fundamentalist stripes that have been given over to, you know, the abuses of legalism and all sorts of things. We would just push against that, and we would say we just hold to what the Bible says. We just want to be regulated by the Word of God alone and not these extra standards that are often laid upon the text of Scripture. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think we need, you know, even how that question was worded, we need to to make the point that there there is no one fundamentalist movement. There are all sorts of disparate groups that throughout history have called themselves fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. 
which is part of the problem. And one of the reasons that I, you know, I would say I wouldn't want to put that label upon myself because, like you said, there are some who claim the title fundamentalists who are King James only Arminian revivalists who believe that women wear pants that they're they're sinful, and that's sort of the legalism you were talking about. I wouldn't want to be identified with that. There are other people who claim the name fundamentalist for whatever reason, and they're Calvinists and preach from the ESV. But the problem is you have all these different kinds of groups, and to use the label without an opportunity to really clearly define is, is, you know, is, yeah. is a problem. Um, and then the other point, I, so I, so that's why I agree completely with what you said, um, Josh, a moment ago. And the other point I think we just need to talk about just briefly is the fact that it seems, and this seems to be on, on the uptick recently, that there are people who like to use the fundamentalist label and mm-hmm. peg it on anybody who holds to a position that they think is too rigid mm-hmm. than their own. Sure. So yeah. You're a cessationist. Well, you're a fundamentalist because that's more than the gospel. Yeah. Or you, you know, you advocate for conservative worship or reform worship. Well, you're a fundamentalist, and that really comes from kind of the gospel minimalism mm-hmm. that we've seen emerge out of some of the popular evangelical groups of, of recent days, where the gospel is the only important thing and nothing else is important. Cessationism is not important. Worship's not important. Right. I mean, you think about it in the SBC. The moderates referred to the conservatives as fundamentalists. The fundamentalists take over the SBC because they held to an errancy, right? right? So it's this boogeyman, and it's it's unhelpful. Yeah. And uh, so you know the the, la- the label is just too fuzzy. There are certainly mo- groups that call themselves fundamentalists that are that are legalistic, and so the the label's you know a, a problem. Let's just affirm scripture, and then let's acknowledge. We believe the gospel is centrally important, but there are some other issues that are worth standing for. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make us a fundamentalist. It just means that we believe that there are issues that affect the the stability and Um, and truthfulness of the gospel. Yeah, in fact, I I wrote an article this past year on on that subject yeah. called the F word, yeah. <laughs> the revival of fundamentalism, yeah, because yeah. again, they're, they're using it as a weaponized term right. against their opponents, yeah. people that they you know disagree with on various different things. Um, again, oftentimes it's the more moderate types that are using it against right. the conservatives, right. and it, it becomes a pejorative. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. I can remember this a story of one lady that came to us. She she met us at a conference and she was talking. She said she was watching the social justice movement rise up in her church. And as she started noticing this and seeing the pastors speaking at these different conferences that are all, you know, very much infiltrated with, you know, the social justice movement, she started noticing the recommended book list in the church and the Bible studies that were happening, book studies, small groups were all, you know, passing around these books that were all very much in the vein of the social justice movement. So she called a meeting with her pastors and and, and they, of course, listened to her and and her complaints and concerns. Keep in mind, she was coming from a context that was outside of America that had watched the downfall of an entire culture because of social justice. And so she was bringing these concerns to her pastors, and the response of her pastors was simply this, ma'am, it just seems like you're just a fundamentalist. Wow. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely used as a pejorative. So... So, yeah, we're not a fundamentalist ministry, but we do stand upon the Word of God without blushing about yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's solid. Next question kind of swings the, the, the opposite direction, demon possession. <laughs> demon possession. This is kind of a kind of a, one that I don't see I, – I don't see – I don't think we get this often. Maybe We've had some demons in our electronics here in the yeah. studio before. <laughs> yeah. That's true, we have. 
You're not yeah. talking about Laramie. No. no. Oh, wow. Wow. Bro, I got, yeah, he just, yeah, he just threw, threw down his headset. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, what is the biblical position on demonic activity directed towards the Christian? Um, there's a, there are a number of questions. Maybe I'll, I'll read them out and, and you guys can decide which ones you want to, you want to pick apart here. Um, does God anoint those with gifts to be able to deal with or cast out demons? That's a whole cessationist kind of, kind of issue there. Why or why not? Uh, and at what point should we consider something a demonic influence or our own sin? Which should we primarily be worried about? So there's a lot of things going on there. Yeah, I just think that the local church is called to the ministry of the word, yeah. to the proclamation of the gospel, making disciples of all nations, rightly dividing the word of God. And I think that's the mainstay. We should not be demon hunters. Mm-hmm. We should not be running around trying to find a demon under every coffee cup or in every little problem that we have, like mm-hmm. I joked about a moment ago with electronics mm-hmm. and right, problems. Right, right. You know, <laughs> we had one episode that failed, and, and, and I had really jabbed Scott great. I mean, it was a great <laughs> That was moment. actually an a- angelic and, uh, work. Yeah. That wasn't a demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, demons are fallen angels. So... <laughs> Um, but but nevertheless, I was hoping to have that footage. But anyway, somehow or God, another, God it is, was God is uh, I think yeah. Laramie was looking out for his friend yeah. and just <laughs> pushed a race, pushed the button. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, I, I don't think we should be looking for demons under every rock. We need to be preaching the word of God. We need to be making disciples, and then furthermore, uh, you know, again, you could get into all sorts of things related to eschatological positions on, you know, whether or not, you know, the, the demonic forces today are the same as they were when Jesus was, was here in his earthly ministry. I think it would be, uh, you know, easy to just document when you see Jesus in his earthly ministry walking about, you're seeing a a massive uptick of demonic Mm -hmm. activity that's Mm -hmm. different than it is today. Mm -hmm. However, if you talk to missionaries on the mission field that are going into very dark regions where the gospel has yet to be preached, oftentimes what you will hear is that they experience all sorts of demonic forces opposing their ministries. But I just think it would be, you know, uh, uh, it would be wrong-headed for the church to just focus in on making that like your mainstay of gospel ministry is is just chasing demons, yeah. Or or the idea of the, you know that in, in a prayer you're going to pray against demons, right? Yeah, right. right? That whole that whole thing. And even process. you know, so what, what what do you do if you suspect that there is demon possession? You know, and there might be, but although I would say measure that against scripture, it's going to look like the demon possession of scripture. But I remember this came up in my ordination council, you know, twenty years ago. What would you do if you encountered someone who's demon possessed? And I said I would preach the gospel to them. Mm-hmm. And this person's like, what, what, what? You, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, and they were sort of appalled. And I said, no, I don't have the gift of demon exorcism. You know, I think of that, that case in Acts 19 where you had the Jewish exorcist and they were trying to cast out the demons and the demons like, I don't know who you are. And they started to slap. I think that's what, if I tried to cast out a demon, that's what happened. Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. I know Jesus and I know Paul. Paul who, are who are you? <clears throat> no, what does that person need? They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Those demons know Jesus so if if I ever encountered someone who's demon possessed, I would simply strongly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and trust that the Spirit would do the work that He would do even in someone who's not demon possessed, because someone who is a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. So if that if the Holy Spirit of God regenerates that person's heart, they come to faith in Christ. That in of itself would exercise the demons. Any anything else? I think that's. 
I think that covers it. Covers it really really well. Pastoral ministry. Here's the question regarding sabbaticals and pastoral counseling rehabilitation. How would you approach the what, how, why, etc. of the decision? So I guess this person is just asking if, you know, should there be sabbaticals? Should there be pastoral counseling rehabilitation? How do you approach that? You know, what, where, when, when, and why, and how should you make that kind of a decision? Yeah, I think it, I think it just demands discernment. And, and, and again, every context is different. I think it would be foolish for a pastor who's young to go into a church that's struggling to pay his salary, first of all, and to suggest that he needs a 30-day sabbatical. Right every single summer and you know that that's just you know something that the bible mandates i I think that would be foolish on the flip side i would say i think it would be foolish for a church to think that the pastor should work 24 7 365 and never have an opportunity to to sort of decompress Mm -hmm. and to be able to recuperate from the 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 difficulties and the burdens of ministry Yeah. yeah So I just think that every context is different. Yeah. And, you know, I've been here 13 and a half years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so this upcoming year in August to be 14 years. And we've been talking for like the last seven years about a sabbatical and it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. And it's just because of, you know, one thing after the next. And, you know, there's the ministry of G3 that's grown and then there's, you know, increase in the life of the church and organization that's needed. And so it's just really prevented me from doing that. I I have aspirations and plans to do it soon. Yeah. I just don't know when. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage anybody listening who's just a church member or a deacon Care for your pastor, yes, right? Absolutely. They care for your soul, and so do whatever you can. You're right; every context is different, but but pastors are under so much pressure. Pastors have the weight of the souls of the members in their congregation weighing upon them, mm-hmm. and so you know whether it's you know periodic, you know, just making your pastor go on vacation, which yeah. some pastors just don't feel like they can. No, tell your pastor, please go help help pay their way yeah. for vacation, yeah. yeah, or maybe an extended sabbatical. They need the rest, yeah. And, and, and again, I, I would say to the church and to the pastor, specifically the younger pastor, I would say one of the things you should do is when you plan vacations, this is a means of just having like a mini sabbatical that's not 30 days but might only be one week, is don't plan your vacation from Monday to Saturday mm-hmm. or even yes. from Sunday to Saturday. Plan it from Monday to Sunday. Yeah. And the reason for that. It's only one day difference. Right. But the reason for that is that when you're on vacation, your mind can be disconnected. You can be focused on your wife and your children and and not be focusing on, well, what I need to be preparing for as because Sunday's always coming. Right. Yeah. And that's something that a church needs to recognize is that the pastor lives under that 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 clock yeah. every week is Sunday is always coming. <laughs> right. And so if you're on vacation and it's Wednesday and you're sitting there on the beach with your family, the tendency, and I've lived this, is to be thinking about Sunday. And so if you know that when you come back from vacation, your last day of vacation is either Sunday or Monday, and then you ease back into the work week the, the, the next week, then you have a full week before you're ready to stand back in the pulpit again. 
And that's good stuff. Uh, this this person, we get this question a lot. Uh, and in fact, I, I want to say we did a complete podcast about this particular question. So the question is this. I've recently moved to a new city. I'm looking for a church. What are the main issues that I need to be looking for as I walk into a church for the first time and as I assess the health of the church? I could go off on a long tangent. I mean, we have article after article on this very question on our website. We so did I would an just, entire podcast. We've about done a podcast, subject, yeah. but I would just say just a few things. First of all, everything in the life of the church is going to be connected to the preaching of the word. So the right preaching of the word of God should be there. I would argue biblical exposition. I'm not suggesting that if a church doesn't preach every single sermon expositionally, verse by verse, mm-hmm. you know, sequential exposition through books of the Bible, that that's sinful. I would just say that the mainstay of the church should be that, but there is obvious room for you know a topical sermon or a doctrinal sermon or a topical expository sermon, you know maybe on Sunday evenings or Wednesdays. I would say the right preaching of the word should be there. I would say the right administration of the ordinances or the sacraments should be there. So how a church practices baptism and the Lord's Supper matters. Mm-hmm. And I would just argue that there should be some form and means of biblical church discipline practice in the life of the church. And if the church doesn't have really those main pillars in place, or at least moving in that direction, then I would add, of course, another layer to that would be like, you know, a a specific biblical ecclesiology. So a plurality of elders leading, a plurality of, of deacons serving. If a church is like not interested in those main things mm-hmm. for whatever reason I would just cross that church off of the list and move on mm-hmm. and it may be a you know a difficult area it may require you to travel you know mm-hmm. a, a <clears throat> 30 or 45 minute drive yep. Yep. to a local church yep. but those are really important things that's good yep. that's good anything you add to that Scott? I would just say all of those amen and then but just also be aware that a pastor might be in the process yep of getting there. So yes. you might come in and look around and not see some of those things, but make sure you have a conversation with the with the pastors and if they say, "Listen, that's where we're headed." Man, jump on that ship and help them. Absolutely. Yeah, man, that's really good. Yeah. You kind of you kind of touched on this a little bit as it pertains to uh, preaching, but we get this question often and so I I'm going to ha- go ahead and ask it. And it is is there any other approach to pulpit ministry other than expository preaching? Is is that the only ki- kind of preaching that's acceptable? The only type of preaching acceptable? And the answer to that would be no, but uh, again, I think that if the church is just, you know, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Every single sermon is from a different book of the Bible, and it's just a topical sermon. Basically, the pastor's just looking at whatever series might seem relevant to you know the culture, or maybe using the news headlines or the you know the New York Times as sort of like what drives the pulpit. That would be a problem. Mm. But I think we should be honest and say that if the main diet of the church is a verse-by-verse approach to the preaching of the Word of God, that's going to be a healthy approach. But I think it would be really good every now and then for a pastor to just preach on smaller sections of the Bible. So you might preach a series on the Ten Commandments. Right. You know, you don't have to preach all of Exodus to do that. Right. And you know, you could preach just the Sermon on the Mount, and you don't have to preach all of Matthew to do that. Uh, you could do a, a series just on the the you know the upper room discourse, or you could do a series on, you know, a doctrinal series like on ecclesiology mm-hmm. or the doctrines of grace, or 
you know, biblical ecclesiology, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to say there should be some you know, opportunity for that type of preaching to be in the life of the church, and it can be a healthy thing. It can be a, a means of encouragement yeah. to the church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why we, we need to define, you know, expository preaching well, too, because in all of those examples that you mentioned, which I agree, whether it's a, a topic or a shorter passage of Scripture, it still needs to be expositional. Yeah. If by exposition we mean the point of the text is the point of the sermon. Yeah. Right? So I can, you know, I, I agree, like the main diet it's healthy if it's if it's you know through a book because you're getting the whole context. But even if a sermon is topical or there's a doctrinal series, still the texts that are chosen, mm-hmm. the point of the text mm-hmm. needs to be the point of the sermon. That's yeah. expository preaching, and that needs to be the case regardless of the particular kind of sermon. Yep. Yeah. You, yeah. you might be doing a series on you know say baptism, yeah. or the Lord's Supper, or you might be doing a doctrinal series on, say, you know, demons, for instance, or whatever it might be. Well, in order to do that, you're not going to be camped out in just one specific paragraph or pericope, right? You're going to be all over the Bible. But again, this is why, you know, preaching matters and the way we approach a text of Scripture matters, because let's say I'm preaching through Luke's gospel, which I am, and I'm in a specific pericope, a paragraph of the of the scriptures, and I'm I'm you know working my way through that that passage. If I if I bring over supporting texts of scripture, it is my duty to make sure that when I use every one of those supporting texts, that I'm doing so in its proper context. Yeah, absolutely, I can't just cherry pick by doing a word search and just bring over, you know, passages of scripture and just quote it. Yeah. I mean, that's not preaching. Right. And so the preacher's job is to make sure that every single verse that he preaches in that sermon that he's using that verse the way that the Holy Spirit and the original author intended. intended. Yeah, man, that's really good stuff. Well, here's a question that we get often, uh, and it's about the subject of Christian nationalism. So the question is this, regarding Christian nationalism, why has G3 taken a rigid position against CN? So why have we taken that position? Yeah, I, I would just say, first of all, you know, again, we appreciate the question. Yep. Um, we get this question often, as you've stated, because of, of the subject matter. Um, I would just say we don't demonize every single person who maybe holds to a a different position than us on Christian nationalism. But there's now before you answer before you answer that, let's do this. In fact, I I want to give you full reign to unpack the whole answer and let it. We've we've gone quite some time. time. Yeah, we've gone quite some time. And and rather than really kind of pushing for time, let's just put that uh, on the back end. If you want to hear the full answer, go to plus.g3men.org, plus.g3men.org. Let me say it one more time plus.g3men.org. Uh, subscribe, uh, get download the G3 Plus app, and you'll hear the full answer on the backside. We want to thank you all for joining us for this episode. We're hoping that you were edified, that you were helped by all the questions uh, that we got through. There were questions that got asked we didn't get to, so we'll probably have to revisit those. And, and again, if you're listening and you liked what you heard, definitely like, subscribe, share the podcast, uh, but also send us questions, man. We enjoy the opportunity to interact with you, and, and this is that that. That, uh, that space where we'll get that done. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Join us next time for the G3 Podcast.